0: Welcome to Ethics in Action, brought to you by the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts Boston. Dive into crucial conversations with academics and policymakers as we explore the crossroads of ethics and public affairs. Good afternoon, Larry. Good
1: afternoon. Uh,
0: My name is Nir Izikovich, and I am the director of the Applied Ethics Center at UMass, and this is uh, an episode of Ethics in Action, our podcast, and my uh, guest today is my... Uh, wonderful colleague, uh, Larry Blum, who has just published uh, a new book. Uh, the book is Integrations, The Struggle for Racial Equality and Civil Renewal in Public Education. And it's co-written with uh, Zoe Burkholder, who is a historian. Larry is an Emeritus Professor of Philosophy and Distinguished Professor of Liberal Arts and Education at UMass Boston. Larry, thank you so much for, uh, being with me today
1: so glad to be here and to be part of this UMass project
0: um, so uh, Larry uh, the book is called um, integrations and uh, it seems fascinating so maybe let me start with um, so and I uh, as I'm understanding it is uh, about both the history of and arguments for and against different conceptions of uh, integration in higher education why integrations in the plural rather than integration in the singular.
1: I'll explain that, but just let me say that the book is really about two different things. It's about integration and it's about racial equality in education and it's about their connections to each other. So, but I'll start with the the plural title integrations. Um, we, We felt, Zoe and I felt that people have used the notion of integration in so many different ways that people who are discussing it are often sort of talking past each other. So we distinguish three different dimensions of, of difference in the different conceptions of, of integration. One is on a, a purely definitional level. So um, integration in the, in the Brown, you know, the 1954 Brown decision integration referred to what has also been called desegregation, though that term also has some some ambiguities but fewer um, which meant the the kind of dismantling of the legal structure of you know what's called Jim Crow segregation both in in schools and in society more generally. So integration in that sense simply means that there's no longer this, uh, structure in which students are intentionally assigned to different schools because it's believed that it's wrong for for white students to go to school with black students and that black students are inferior and that's why it's not good for whites to go to school with them. So that legal structure of course was not, even though the, the Brown decision said that you couldn't have that structure in education. The fact is that the southern states you know to the segregation states did not actually dismantle their systems until the civil rights act of 1964 so that's really the period in which uh, integration in the sense of desegregation really started started happening so then uh, kind of fast forward to the present a second meaning which is probably the most common meaning today is students of different racial backgrounds actually attending the same schools and and the same classes together. So the the first definition doesn't require that they actually attend the same schools even though the Supreme Court expected that that would be a result of their decision. So the second definition focuses simply on the kind of empirical Co presence of different racial groups in the same educational spaces. But then there's a third notion, a third, so to speak, definition or conception of integration, which is um, it, it kind of comes off of feeling like the mere co presence of different uh, groups doesn't capture something about the notion of integration as a genuine ideal, as a social ideal. And uh, Dr. King articulated uh, of this in one of his, his writings on, on integration where he talked about um, how integration could be a physical proximity without spiritual affinity. And so he, he defined uh, integration as being a, uh, you know, a system, a kind of social system in which all groups are embraced and the the different groups are not only tolerated but are it's it's seen as a positive feature of the mixture that something from which all the different groups benefit so we we call that ideal integration that's the third definition ideal integration so then a second dimension of the plurality of integrations is the different ideals that have been built on the Physical co-presence of different racial groups. So, um, you know, so kind of going back a hundred years to the to the period when when white uh, Southern and and Eastern European immigrants, you know, kind of flooded to to the U.S. That was a period in which um, those groups were seen in sort of quasi-racial terms. Um, and the, the schools had these mixed populations. And the ideal that was built on it was that those groups should be compelled to assimilate to a cultural norm of, of Northern European uh, white people. So assimilation, which of course today we don't see that as a positive ideal, but in those days it was seen by many people as a positive Ideal and it, it meant that the immigrant groups should shed their distinctive cultures and not just hang out with each other, not just live with each other. And it was thought that the American nation couldn't really hold together unless you force them to assimilate. So, so one, one form of ideal integration is assimilationism. You know, that, that uh, ideal is, is rejected by most, most people today. And then a, a second ideal Um, that's built on the descriptive integration is that the different groups that are composing the mix in the schools, that those groups would have their distinctive identity and cultures and uh, heritage affirmed within the school. It would be part of what it meant for a school to be integrated, not only that the populations would be co-present, but that the different histories and different, different kind of group identities would be both acknowledged in the school and uh, you know, used as, as educational resources as well. So we, we call that group affirmation. And there, and there are sort of other possible variations. There's a kind of neutralist thing where you don't push groups to assimilate, but you also don't give them formal recognition within the school, that's kind of in between the two. And some people uh, advocate that. Often it's it's more, uh, it, it's not so much uh, definitively advocated but something that um, you, you can see sort of informs the way some people think about the the ideals built on the co-presence of the different groups.
0: So so Larry, let me ask you, the, these uh, two or three or more uh, definitions, they are definitions of, um, uh ideal integration i take it right their definitions of the kind of uh uh more kingian spiritual proximity uh, uh conception is that is that accurate is that right
1: that's right so that's a good way to put it so you've got these three different definitions and then that what i've just been talking about were forms of the last category yeah I'm, yeah I'm ideal integration.
0: so about that last category let me ask you something so Uh, The last category um, expresses this dissatisfaction with just uh, the mere physical uh, proximity uh, and wants something more than the physical proximity, wants a change of uh, attitudes, wants uh, uh, perhaps uh, people not to only be tolerated, but to somehow be uh, spiritually proximate. Is this idea, uh, because it's striking how we're sort of Um, you know, dissatisfied, as it were, with the language of uh, uh, toleration. Um, Is is this idea in uh, tension with uh, some of the basic precepts of a liberal polity, namely, uh, should spiritual be the subject of public policy? Is that something um, I'm assuming you're seeing the kind of liberal, uh, classical liberal at least, or contemporary liberal tension there that we shouldn't really be aiming to either actively reconcile people or change their spiritual attitudes towards each other. So how, how does that sit?
1: Well, th- thinking about the, just the school um, setting for what? this, I think that most people who would regard themselves as liberal could very well embrace the idea that students who attend school together should learn to respect each other and treat each other as equals in the context of of the school, and you know have uh, again just kind of treat each other with respect. Yeah, that, that is different from simply having them be in the same classroom, it's right? A, it's
0: but it's a, also different from being spiritually proximate.
1: Well, it's on the way to being attached to each other and, you know, embracing one another as fellow learners in the community that's constituted by by a classroom and by a school. It, you know, it does invoke um, a certain kind of communitarian value, mm-hmm. but I think it's one that's fairly organic to the fact right. that education is a group, you know, by right. large right. So homeschooling. But, um, that it, it's kind of a group a group activity. And I, I think that's, King wasn't actually talking specifically about the education uh, context, but I think it's, it's in a way a, right. a more acceptable idea, but also think that the idea of multiculturalism has, um, you know, initially multiculturalism was seen as a kind of challenge to, to liberal uh, thinking and then uh, Will Kimlicka came along and tried to, to, to kind of figure out a form of multiculturalism that fit w- within a fairly stringent conception of, of liberalism. But I think multiculturalism, though the term has been abandoned for sort of interesting reasons, um, has in a way become part of the common sense of the educational uh, establishment uh, yeah. of the present. Yeah. That is that, that, that students' ethno-racial identities are kind of important to them, that they should be recognized in the school, and that the school has some responsibility to help students understand each other's identities and heritage and and experience. And all that, you know, it may be not quite as far as King's idea of spiritual affinity. That's a, you know, that's a, that's a higher bar, but it's it's definitely on the path towards that, and um, yeah, I mean it might be intention with a certain strain of liberalism, but certainly not in the you know more, more basic sense of
0: right. You know the the kind of analogy that I've been thinking about is an imper and it's an imperfect analogy, is to the um, efforts to resolve uh, international or uh, political conflicts. In there, you kind of have a similar or analogous paradigm. You have the paradigm, the kind of rights-based paradigm, which um, essentially says, make sure that people's formal demands uh, uh, and entitlements uh, are taken care of, but don't try to influence their attitudes to each other. Right, so that's the kind of more formalist, cold, you know, a uh, peacemaking idea and then you have the sort of reconciliation ideal which is that in addition to addressing those kind of formalist demands, try to change people's attitudes towards each other. And that could be in this analogy, the kind of more South African model of, uh, you know, uh, trying to uh, institute either uh, a degree of forgiveness or a degree of understanding each other's historical narrative and so on and so forth. And that is ambitious and in many ways inspiring and actually pretty rarely successful. Uh, but it's a completely different context. In that context, there's a liberal critique which says, you know, leave people's attitudes and forgiveness to individuals that shouldn't be the subject of public policy. I'm wondering if there's that's where this question comes from. I'm wondering if uh, there's a kind of analog to that here or if there is something special about uh, uh, secondary education. That, makes these kinds of interventions more legitimate, more acceptable, more desirable.
1: I think, I do think it's the latter. You know, the the book is not really engaged with those larger political philosophy issues outside of the education context. And the assumption, you know, in, in the schooling, especially the K-12 compulsory schooling context, is that it's appropriate for schools to teach you know, attitudes. I mean, we don't you know, describe it as such, but that you know, the, the history of schooling in the US has been that moral education has generally been seen as a core aspect of, of schooling up until fairly recently and civic education as well. I mean, moral and civic are obviously have some overlap, but they're somewhat different. So civic emphasizes the engagement with, with the polity and with others as, as, fellow, as fellow citizens. And the, the racial context that the, that the book is concerned with, obviously that has a strong kind of civic implication and, and underpinning, but I think that we, th- we're we're sort of taking as a starting point that um, the the school should engage in uh, moral education, should engage in civic education, and we somewhat lament the sort of neoliberal um, pushing out of those aspects of schooling in favor of more economistic ways of thinking about the value of schooling as as preparation for you know, preparing market agents, so to speak, to be successful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so we, we kind of lodge a critique that requires the idea that the school is gonna be teaching uh, more and civic capabilities uh, and, and attitudes. And we, we sort of lament the fact that in the early years of um, school Uh, in integration, descriptive integration, when it finally happened, which was in the late late 60s. There was a whole kind of research component of the uh, social science community's engagement with integration, which is to study the ways that the co-presence of the different populations could be turned to uh, positive attitudes, to the reduction of prejudice, to you know, a more positive embracing of, of those different. And that um, you know, it was a kind of very, very robust research program through the 70s. I'm not quite sure exactly the periodization of when it, when it started to kind of uh, disappear, but it's, it has been replaced in, in more recent um, decades, I guess you would say, by a focus on much more purely academic and and especially on tested uh, subjects, subject mastery that can be tested as being the the value of descriptive integration has been seen as helping disadvantaged students because of their proximity to the advantaged students and the forms of social, uh, cultural capital, human capital that the that advantage students kind of bring with them to the school. And that has had the effect of making the moral and civic purposes of education be sort of somewhat pushed aside and part, you know, the title of the book, Civic Renewal, is, you know, is part of what we're, we're sort of arguing for. So that's kind of indirect way, responding to your, your question, we don't hit the question you've asked sort of head on, but I'm just explaining where we're coming from and why we don't do so.
0: Right, so let me actually, uh, since you brought it up and I was very curious about it, um, let me actually ask you about the um, rejection of the uh, social capital uh, argument. So if I understand correctly, uh, the book argues a popular conception of uh, integration uh, has to do with, um, integration being good because one group, uh, the disadvantaged group, uh, gets to be in proximity with the privileged or advantaged group, and as a result of that proximity, gain in social capital. So, how did this, um, how did this justification come about historically? And uh, you call it a disaster. Why is it a, why is it a disaster?
1: Um, in terms of where it came from, I'm not sure I know the, the full history, but it's clearly a development from the general neoliberal penetration, so to speak, of, of public discourse, not only in education, by any means, but more generally. And, um, you know, with the, with the election of, of, of Reagan in the U.S., of Thatcher in the UK at around the same time and the kind of uh, international uh, financial institutions such as the OECD, you know, there's a kind of well-documented turn towards neoliberal ways of thinking about the economy, but not only thinking about the economy, but sort of the idea that market uh, conceptions should be, and market processes should be injected into every aspect of, of human social life. And I mean, certainly that's one important aspect of um, why why you, the argument that you just described has become so much more, more popular. I think maybe a second reason, I'm kind of speculating, but a second reason is that um, well, there's two two other reasons I remember. One is that the Supreme Court, starting in 1974 with the Milliken decision, started to turn away from um, mandating descriptive integration, and through the through, it, it was because Nixon appointed four conservative justices, and that really tipped the. Tip the scales from the earlier period where there was a very strong uh, Supreme Court um, underpinning of of the mandating of of descriptive integration, but from 74 until the um, parents involved decision of 2007, there was just an increasing uh, whittling away at the the mandate to, to integrate. So there was sort of a loss of the public ideal of integration that was kind of informed those researchers that I that I mentioned before, and uh, you know some people talk about white people just like weren't into it anymore, and black people got tired of pushing for something that they weren't getting much uptake from from uh, white people for so. If you shift that to a more economic <laughs> argument, it might seem more acceptable to to people on on both on both sides, both people of color and and white people. So that might be that might be part of it as well. That might be a third reason. But then, in terms of um, how we deal with that in in the book, um, we have several. Different but related criticisms of the capital argument that you've you've described. One, the most, in a way, the most fundamental, is that it doesn't recognize that disadvantaged students are educational resources for advantaged students. It makes it seem as if the advantage, um, I'm sorry, that the benefit flows only from the advantaged to the disadvantaged. But the fact is. Um, Advantage students can learn tremendously from students who are very different backgrounds and especially from students of disadvantaged backgrounds because an important part of what we want students to learn um, in, in a civic and morally informed education is to have a conception of justice and to be able to understand their own societies within a, within a justice framework and for advantage if advantaged students attend schools only with other advantaged students they miss an, a tremendously important resource for their understanding the society in which they're gonna they're gonna live but so so, fair, so the
0: fair 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 students, Larry <laughs> on that though, the social capital theorist or the person arguing for integration on social capital ground could take on that objection and still maintain that social capital is a very important argument for integration. So they could say X benefits from being associated with Y, who has higher social capital, and the Y benefits from understanding that the world is much more complicated than she thought it was in the first place. So I'm not sure that does away with social capital as a justification.
1: It it doesn't exactly do away with recognizing that the social capital argument relies on what you might call a capital process that can have some benefit to the uh, to the disadvantaged students we don't really deny that we're just saying that if you have an integration program that's primarily animated by the capital argument that that is very it's a it's a destructive argument in in the setting of a of a school community and uh, in, in classrooms as well, you know, f- because it fails to recognize, you know, it, it fails to recognize the benefit that the that the disadvantaged students, but in addition, just to kind of elaborate down a bit more, it also sends a very deleterious message. To the disadvantaged students, because it kind of says you guys aren't bringing very much to this encounter. You're just benefiting from being here with these upper middle class students, and uh, you know it's shaming and it's it's a dignitary harm to use a, a very nice expression from uh, Derek Darby and John Rory's book, The Color Color of Mind. But in in addition, and sort of the flip side of that, it does a kind of moral damage to the advantaged students because it puffs up their sense of entitlement. You know, they already have that sense of entitlement and the the, uh, capital argument kind of accepts they're having those advantages and doesn't criticize them as being grounded in the injustice that in fact is the source of their of their their advantages. So it gives them the message that indeed, they are kind of superior to the disadvantaged students. And and, it gives their parents a sense of entitlement which can can translate into the uh, upper middle class parents demanding that the school serve their needs more than the needs of the disadvantaged students. We're assuming this is a mixed school. Obviously it doesn't apply, but it's not a mixed school. So, you know, the the messaging of a program founded primarily on the capital argument, that's the problem. It's not, it doesn't deny that um, students can, that disadvantaged students can benefit from superior, various superior capital processes. I mean, I think, you know, we don't, go down this path exactly. But I think that argument just by itself is kind of overstated anyway, but you know, there might be something to it and what we say is compatible with that.
0: Right, so I mean, I, I take it that this critique is connected to the book's larger point that uh, Equality uh, in education depends on larger structural change can just be brought about by uh, 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 integration, however one understands it. And the capital argument which is so uh, influential is essentially, I'm just rephrasing what you said to make sure I understand. The capital uh, argument, namely, that the disadvantaged students uh, gain by social capital from their interactions with the advantaged ones, there's something imperious about it, there's something conservative about it, there's something that insists that the standard for advancement is the standard of the advantaged students that the uh, disadvantaged ones have to, uh, as it were, um, uh, integrate into, and as a result, uh, that's shaming. Uh, uh, at some level, uh, and it perpetuates the existing power uh, structure between them. Uh, does that does that more or less sound fair?
1: That's exactly that's exactly right. And I, I would just you know re- reframe that uh, a little bit, and I'd like to you know get into this larger structure larger structure issue. The capital argument almost never says while we're just accepting the society as it is, and we're gonna make these little adjustments that use the superior uh, advantages of the advantaged people, people. we're gonna try to get some benefit to the disadvantaged through that. But without, without challenging the larger structures of inequality, there's no way that that benefit could come even on its own terms. Could come anywhere near providing actual equality of education, and so that's why I think that the you know the role of myself as a philosopher uh, in this in this uh, you know partnership that Zoe and I had is to try to articulate a conception of equality of education and take that really seriously, so that that would then help the reader see that um, you can't really create genuine equality of education if the society is as unequal as our society is. And the inequality is of both a racial character and a class character. And they're very bound up together, but we you know, foreground both of them because you kind of need to understand both of them in order to understand what what needs to be changed. And the the tradition of recognizing that out of school factors have a tremendous impact on what students are able to accomplish once they're in school, that tradition goes back to James Coleman's report, the the so-called Coleman report from 1966 that was um, sort of commissioned by the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and, and Coleman found that out of school factors of a of essentially of a class nature, though he was only interested in the racial aspect of the class dimension of it, had a tremendous impact on what students emerge from school with, what how much learning they emerge from school with. And that tradition has been a very strong tradition in, the social science of uh, ed- education. And it's been greatly refined since uh, Coleman's time. It's not as if his actual findings stood the test of time, but the basic idea that the class and racial backgrounds of students affect what they're able to learn given the structure of schools and society. That has, I think, been been borne out. So, so yes, we, we think that Um, without changing those larger structures, there's no way that you can actually have, uh, you know, students can't emerge with sort of equal educational goods, which is the terminology that we use or the conception that we use. That, you know, equality should be understood as equal educational goods. And those educational goods are partly subject matter mastery, but also the development of, both intellectual and moral and civic capabilities too. And that all of those have to sort of be part of what our conception of of equality is. I lost my own thread, let me stop there.
0: Is there, you know, on a personal note, I I went to um, uh, an elite high school uh, in Israel uh, and the capital argument really uh, and your critique of it really resonated uh, with uh, you know, with that experience there because I think it was, uh, the, the school had a integration program, uh, an integration program and integration, the students who participated in the integration program from a lower so- uh, socioeconomic background were actually called the integration students. They were uh, bussed into the, a uh, uh, very fancy uh, uptown campus. The students themselves called them, and they called themselves the integration students. So this wasn't just a policy issue. Uh, and as I think back on it, there was this kind of well-intentioned imperiousness involved there. And I guess my one question is, you know, trying to think this through. Uh, If one pushed back at the powers that be in a school like that, and there's many schools like that obviously here, and there's definitely uh, echoes of those kinds of discussions and debates uh, 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 as we speak in all kinds of fancy private schools. If you pushed back at the powers that be or at the better public schools for that matter, I wonder if you don't get a kind of... Maybe that's just how change happens, but don't you get a kind of backlash where people are sort of deeply offended that they say, you know, we really have the kind of good intentions to you know, uh, 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 grace our, uh, our elite backgrounds onto these uh, uh, less fortunate kids. And now you're telling us that this is worthless. You really think that we're going to completely you know, throw away our privilege, throw away our advantage to, you know, remake the world. So you get this kind of, uh, instead of uh, benighted good intentions, you uh, get this kind of aggressive pushback that you wouldn't have gotten before.
1: You know, we just have to bite the bullet there. I mean, if you agree that these are really destructive attitudes that are both bad for the so-called integration students, it's a great, you know, use of that term. No, they they solve the, that. Which
0: was
1: yeah. striking. But for the advantaged students yeah. as well, then you know the the challenge is okay. So what do you do? How how do you have an integration program if it has to be intentional? You know, in other words you know, if, if our society wasn't so residentially segregated, then schools would, as it were, naturally be integrated and you wouldn't have to make a whole thing of it. But because of neighborhood segregation, which has been, you know, as Richard Rothstein showed in his book, Colored by Law and other, other scholars have documented, th- these are intentional uh, process, historical processes that pushed populations into different, neighborhoods so it means that integration is often has to be sort of more intentional so what do you do um you know what message does the school itself and maybe the school district and maybe the larger school system put out towards the parents coming into those schools that would be a productive you know, a productive set of attitudes. So in the book, we have uh, just a couple, you know, examples. We don't go into any detail about this, but we show that there are districts around the country which have embraced this equity and justice way of thinking about the school community that all diff- all groups all students of different backgrounds have something to contribute and the parents of different backgrounds have something to contribute and the society is an unjust society. You know, this is something which, especially in the last 10 years, has really become much more of a mainstream idea. Obviously, the Republicans are completely resisting it, but in a certain way, the horrible, uh, you know, bills that are being passed in Republican legislatures to essentially say you can't teach the stuff that Blum and Burkholder say you need to teach in their book integrations. It shows that they're recognizing that there's something going on uh, among, you know, including quite a lot of white people, but a lot of people of color are just like, you know, they're, they are Signed on to a social justice project and they want their education to serve that social justice goal. So, you know, there are examples of like principals of schools who have figured out how to talk to the advantaged parents to make them see that it's actually in many ways beneficial to their kids to go to a school with you know, students of, of less advantaged backgrounds, it's a much richer experience for them, both socially, but also uh, more broadly, educationally. And, um, you know, that, that a lot of parents are capable of signing on to that agenda. Of course, there might be some who do what you what you ask near that they just say, you know, we're, you know, we're, Using our advantages to help these people, and we want to feel good about that, and we don't want anybody to tell us that there is something unjust in the background of our doing. <laughs> okay, there might be some people who do that, but you know, I think that's part of the challenge of our time about this.
0: What, um, what is the, what is your, um, how should I put this? What's your ideal ratio, if you will, in a well-constructed integration program between uh, what parts of this actually go into the curriculum and what parts of this go into the design of the school. So in other words, do the ideas uh, that you and your co-author are arguing for, are they primarily aimed at the reform of the curriculum itself or at the reform of, the structure uh, of learning, or if both, is there a ratio between them?
1: Well, in in a way, there are kind of three different uh, threads of that. One is purely curricular, but one is pedagogical. And then a third is other aspects of the school that are not the former two. And we don't as it were, theorize this in any kind of uh, systematic way. We, it's, it's more, you know. Of course, we are concerned about curriculum, but we don't, you know. We, we more use those as examples. And you know, t- just to touch on the second category of, of pedagogy, a lot of teachers. Okay, so I'm backing up a minute. As you know, I. I taught myself at my local high school, Cambridge Ranger Latin High School, in the early and mid 2000s. And I wrote this book about about that, High School's Race in America's Future, that was about the course that I taught four times in this extremely mixed school. And that experience really informs what I'm doing in this this, uh, book as well. So um, many students who you know, came through, my, my class was a class was called Race and Racism. And many students said that in their other classes, racial issues would get kind of surfaced. And often the teachers who were well-meaning wouldn't know how to deal with that. They wouldn't know how to craft a discussion that really helped students you know, engage with these issues. Now, I do think 16 years later and post George Floyd era and the Black Lives Matter movement has changed that and has had an impact on education. I'm not as in touch with those on the ground developments but I certainly have a sense from things I've read that many more teachers recognize that they need to learn more how to teach those uh, that material and what kind of sensitivities they need to students of different backgrounds and pedagogy in in integrated classrooms, how that's, you know, it's a different issue from curriculum and it's very important and teachers aren't always instructed as to how to do it, but I was hoping and assuming that in the Black Lives Matter period that we live in, there's been more attention on the part of education schools and school districts and schools to helping their uh, faculties kind of learn sensitive, race-informed pedagogy. And I just was giving a sort of obvious example where a teacher would treat a student from uh, a particular ethno-racial group as a kind of implicit spokesperson for that group rather than just giving their own point of view or inviting them, you know, p- permitting but not pressing students to say, I think a lot of Black people think, you know, what I'm going to say, I think a lot of Black people agree with it, or I don't think a lot of Black people agree with it, but mm-hmm. sort of recognizing how to acknowledge a student's racial. Um, identity is it's a it's quite a complex issue there's a thing that's sometimes called hyper visibility in the education literature you know where you kind of shine this spotlight you know on that student and they lose a sense of just like one member (laughs) there's just like one member of the class but there's also invisibility so you know you've got to thread the needle between them anyways that's just one example of the importance of of uh, pedagogy, and then I was just saying that a third aspect of the school that that sort of has to be mobilized properly for um, for an integration program to be working well are other aspects of the schools that are not that are non-classroom, so kind of social. Um, you know, social activities, trying to sort of encourage a mix of students from different backgrounds to be in the clubs and the drama societies and that kind of thing, but also the community of the parents constituted by the parents at a school. Of course, this is you know generally more true at the uh, elementary and, and junior high level than the high school level but even in the high school there's you know parent groups and kind of making sure that those groups are inclusive and aren't dominated by one group that tends to be the most advantaged parents who know how to work the system the best. So there's a lot of elements that that make the uh, integration program work and you sort of have to take on, Uh, the the whole range to to get the full benefit, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I I was gonna ask you in that context where you just spoke about how um, difficult it is to uh, sort of um, affirm the distinctive uh, uh, identities um, in a a, a setting that is trying to uh, become more integrated in the uh, plausible sense of that term. I mean, part of the concerns, you know, even some part of the concerns that uh, we're hearing in our own uh, university right now in a, a similar related uh, context is how do you um, how do you figure out the dance between, on the one hand, um, affirming the distinctive identities, and on the other hand, avoiding the kind of uh, identity politics that comes with it or uh, avoiding the kind of subject position uh, um, discussion where, you know, only uh, African-American kids can speak of the African-American concern, only Jewish kids can speak of the Jewish concern, so on and so forth. So the sort of walking on needles that has become um, more prevalent now in these settings. So, or, or is that just a feature of these kind of uh, uh, new negotiations yeah. that has to work itself out, and there's no way around it.
1: Yeah, it's it it is very uh, complex. But I also think that even just articulating it the way you did, that there's a, 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 obviously a danger in giving the message that only members of a certain group can speak, you know, usefully about the experiences of of that group. You know that. Obviously, a teacher has to um, put forward the view that people can learn about groups other than their own. And indeed, otherwise, what would be the point of, of having schools? You know, if everyone already knew all they needed to know just from their own background, um, you know, you wouldn't need to go to school. But, uh, but, but I guess, I guess, um, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, hold a second. So so I guess I'm saying the teacher has to kind of put forward the view that we are a learning community we all of us have something to learn even about our own group and its background but certainly about other groups and about how the different groups have interacted in 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 a national and international context and in in a learning community it's very Uh, you know, that's like what's magical in a way about a learning community is that it's a space where you come acknowledging that you don't know everything's important to learn about. At the same time, you don't want to put forward this like totally colorblind idea that your own background is totally irrelevant to contributing to this discussion. You want people to contribute to it from their own background and I think that uh, you know my experience teaching that high school class was that over time when when you've sort kind of normalized the idea that you're talking about race I mean that's already like a big deal because most you know classes especially in the k-12 level don't really talk about race in a sustained way that that frames race as a thing to learn about like chemistry. Um, But once you've created the idea that this class is about race, people recognize that, you know, just because you're black, you don't necessarily know everything about that. And, And if you're white, you know, there's a lot of things you really don't know about. I mean, you don't want the teacher to come in saying, you know, on the first day, well, you know, white people, you guys are, have lived in a bubble and there's a lot of stuff you don't understand and you're going to learn about it in this class. I don't think that's a good way to approach it. But on the other hand, that is, (laughs) it's true. And there are constructive ways of helping white students recognize their ignorance and uh, wanting, not only recognize the ignorance, but wanting to remedy the ignorance. That's like a really crucial dimension of it. So yes, it is very complicated. But once you recognize that it's a task, you can, you know, the, the the faculty as a whole can can meet, they can sort of talk about these things. Of course, there's a lot of literature about how to do this kind of pedagogy, it's, you know, increasing and, you know, it's just bringing that to the to the school. Right, right,
0: right. There I know I have to let you go in a couple of minutes. So let me ask you one. Uh, last question. I know that obviously you've taught for many, many years at uh, UMass Boston, which is uh, one of the most uh, diverse schools uh, here in the Northeast. Um, and um, I guess I'm curious about how that experience uh, animated and uh, impacted the argument uh, and the interest in writing the book. Did you? Uh, view that as a kind of uh, uh, almost laboratory where um, a degree of integration was successful in spite of failures at the secondary level, as a laboratory of relative failure because integration was a failure at the secondary level, as what can be done even though uh, the secondary level uh, didn't work. Uh, I'm curious about the relationship between the two.
1: Yeah, that's that. That's interesting. A, I think there are several different ways that teaching at UMass Boston for forty-five years really affected affected me um, over time. As UMass became uh, racially more diverse, even though it became in some ways economically somewhat less. So, uh, you know, I. I, st- I, I wasn't always someone who taught about, about race. It's a, it came came along later in my career and I taught for several decades. I just taught kind of moral philosophy courses. But so I sort of in a way got brought along by the diversity at UMass. And it it was the same period that my three children were going to the public schools in Cambridge, which especially more so at that time than than currently, um, was an extremely diverse uh, school system. And, you know, I mentioned that the high school where I taught, which is where they they all went to high school, I just became sort of fascinated by um, the diversity at at that level as well. So th- both of these things were kind of happening around the same time and my own intellectual interests started shifting towards these racial issues, but also educational issues. So I, I work in philosophy of education today. Um, UMass Boston was very uh, favorable towards my doing this teaching in the high school. And I'm very grateful that they didn't think, well, what are you doing teaching high school students? You know, we're, we have these college students that they saw it as, that UMass saw it as a kind of supporting the urban mission of, of UMass, that one of their professors would go to a local high school and give a course on, on race and racism. I also, uh, students in, in my high school class, um, every year, several of them came to UMass Boston and I tried to stay in touch with them, but I also kind of in a way felt that Cambridge Ringer Latin and UMass Boston were somewhat similar. Uh, institutions in, in, in certain ways and um, I didn't so much see the, the college level classes as making up for the failures of integration at the at the high school level it's just you know you're you're discussing materials sort of at a different uh, level of, of sophistication and you know the, the diversity at UMass really enriched those conversations. I taught a course on philosophy and multiculturalism, another course on race, race and racism. I taught both of those classes quite, quite, quite frequently, and I'm sure that I was bringing some things that I learned from teaching those classes to the high school and and kind of vice versa. But my interest in all of those things, you know, were were very much kind of. Uh, Reinforcing, reinforcing uh, one another, and you know I'm I'm I love teaching at UMass Boston for this reason for all those for all those years it was really an unusual and exceptional place in the Northeast to be to be teaching uh, college level classes, and uh, you know you you in your your brief description of some of the. Um, you know, problems at the moment of like who gets to speak and that kind of thing. Maybe that has gotten a little bit worse since I left four years ago. But
0: yeah. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, I. I guess part of my question is animated by, can some of the by this by this can some of the, damage that you, uh, describe in the book. Uh, damage from failures of integration, can some of that be repaired in the post-secondary level or um, is it a sort of spillover effect of what's gone wrong uh, in the schools once these kids uh, uh, do go on to college when they do?
1: Okay, that's that's a great question there. yeah, so I, I hadn't turned tuned into that aspect for your original question. Um, I do I do think that the the college level is a new opportunity, and you know students from different backgrounds come to colleges in a way that they don't always do at the at the high school level, and so there there is an opportunity for that mixture to be eye opening and to be. You know to be very challenging but to be eye-opening to students and i'm sure you know we, we've all had this experience of students uh, you know coming to college and just thinking like whoa i just didn't know all that before you know you can remedy some of the uh ignorance of the previous um uh, you know stage of, of the students education and you know of course also it's not just a, a it's not just a deficiency at the previous stage. Each stage has its own uh, right. challenges and, uh, and appropriate material. Right. But um, yeah, I, I do think that you can remedy. It is true that, you know, over time students can can get locked into certain points of view that are harder to shake, but but you know, I, I do think that there, there are tremendous opportunities at the college, at the college level to. To remedy some of the problems at the previous level
0: Yeah, larry thank you very very much for uh spending the hour with me i will put a link to your new book and also to your uh high school book into the program notes so that listeners can go and uh check them out so thanks again and it's it's been wonderful talking to you
1: thank you so much it was it was really great i'm sorry for the technical problems there towards the end
0: no problem the, the, our, our technical wizards will fix them
1: hey, great right. thanks, thanks again
0: thank you for listening to Ethics in Action for more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center check us out at umb.edu backslash
1: ethics